And now I'm involved in the asset management of those six properties, totaling about 1,300 units. Since then, we've added, I should say, a focus on the Indianapolis market, the Midwest. We really like that market. We picked up a $72 million portfolio there last year in June of 2022, and we've never looked back. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Daniel Lickman, who serves as Lightwater's Director of Acquisitions. With his persistence and perseverance, he has sourced and closed numerous multifamily transactions. When he isn't busy looking for his next deal, he is spending time with his rambunctious children. Daniel has a passion for multifamily, real estate, travel, and life. Daniel, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. So I've got several kids myself. What's your go-to activity uh, for containing rambunctious children? I got to know the secret. I like to spend a lot of time with them outside. So over the weekends, I, I use the time to spend time either on the play set or playing baseball or sports, especially in today's in the summer environment. They, they love to get on their bikes and scooters and spend time with me. And that's definitely my why. And I love coming home to them and seeing them. And even, even with a busy schedule, with travel and work, always balancing my life, life work balance for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important. Yeah. We, so many people get into this business or into any, any business for that matter to provide for their family, to take care of them, but keeping that balance along the way and remembering that it is about the journey, not necessarily the destination is really important, especially for husbands and fathers. Definitely. Definitely. So kind of along those lines. You had a post a little while back on LinkedIn where you talked about how you turn your cell phone off for 25 hours a week. Um, okay, sure. For a lot, a lot of people, that'd be like cutting off their right arm and putting it on the counter <laughs> and not being able to use it. What, what's the genesis of that? And how has that been sure. beneficial in your life in achieving that work-life balance? Sure. So I'm, an, I'm a religious Orthodox Jew. Grew up that way. For me, every Saturday was a Sabbath that we didn't, we disconnected to reconnect. So I grew up with it. So obviously it's a lot easier than someone that hasn't experienced it. From sundown Friday until Saturday evening for about 24, 25 hours, we don't get in the car. We don't turn on electricity. We make sure everything is set up before. We use a crock pot to warm up something for, the, for, this, for Saturday to have hot food. But we do things in advance to prepare for it. Um, another thing we do, obviously, like I discussed, was that we turn off our phones. We're not in communication with the greater world. We spend time with our family and with our communities. And honestly, it's, it's not easy. But when I made that post, I recommended it. A few people told me they're going to try it. And I actually have a pretty cool story for you. One of our brokers in Indiana, she told me that before COVID, she was trying this where she, would, she wouldn't work on Saturday just as a way to spend time with her family. I sent her this video about, my turning, off, about turning off my phone. And she got back to me a week later and said, Daniel, I just want to let you know, this past Saturday, I decided I'm not going to work. I spent time reading. And just talking and chatting with my 12-year-old. And he said, Mom, I forgot how nice it was to spend time with you. So definitely, I definitely would highly recommend it. And obviously, I do it from a religious perspective, but it could be done. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be done by anyone that wants to try it and just disconnect, reconnect, even for a few hours at a time, just to really spend quality time with their family. I would highly recommend it. Yeah. So there's a lot of folks that struggle with compulsive behaviors, particularly around technology. So totally understand that you're doing this for religious reasons, but have you found that that regular cadence of just not being with technology for that 24 hour period has allowed you to have more control over technology in the other six days of the week and use it maybe in a more purpose-driven way? 
Um, yes, for sure. I mean, the fact that we were forced to turn things off allows you to recalibrate every Friday evening when I'm sitting at the Sabbath dinner. My family likes to go over what our goals are for the next week and talk about what we're grateful for. And that definitely helps us reset. Uh, but I also try as much as possible when I do come home from a busy day to put away my phone, not to be busy with things. Emails can, can wait. We think can wait. My family is important. So I feel that that 25-hour period definitely helps recalibrate your week and allows you to, to really reset. Definitely. I oh, appreciate you elaborating on that. What does keep you busy is multifamily acquisitions. You have a, a background there. You've been doing that for a long period of time and obviously at Lightwater for the last year or so. Maybe just sketch your firm's thesis, where you guys are buying, what kind of assets you're buying. We'll kind of start drilling down on some multifamily stuff for the audience here. Sure, sure. So Lightwater Capital started in 2019. Um, there's, they have a separate division that started in 2007 called Jay Watson Co., which manages New York properties, which is still in existence, managing about 3,000 units in the five boroughs of New York. In 2019, the law, the rent laws changed and made it quite, quite difficult to make, be profitable with any properties in New York. And they decided, Joe Wasser and Mayor Free, the two principals of the company, decided to start Lightwater Capital to invest out of state. They spent about the next seven or eight months researching different markets. And they finally landed on Atlanta, Georgia as a market they wanted to start with. They bought two deals there in the beginning of COVID in 2020, which they since sold in 2022 for a really nice return to our investors um, in a short two-year time period. And since then, we've picked up six properties, one of them, which I've been, I was involved in the acquisitions role, the other five were from before I joined the company. And now I'm involved in the asset management of those six properties, totaling about 1,300 units. Since then, we've added, I should say, a focus on the Indianapolis market, the Midwest. We really like that market. We picked up a $72 million portfolio there last year in June of 2022, and we've never looked back. In January of 2023, we picked up another property and we just closed, thank God, last week on two, two deals in Indianapolis, Indianapolis as well. So we have about 1,200 and units there as well. And we have one small deal in Savannah. Uh, we typically target um, value-add workforce housing type of multifamily, lighter value-add, something that's already existing cash flow that we have opportunities to, to, to bring it to the next level, to, to maybe take some of the long-term ownership that hasn't really pushed the rent or hasn't really renovated the units will come in, do strategic renovations, we'll add, add or improve the amenities, we'll do light upgrades to the units, and we'll try to bring down our expenses as much as possible to really uh, maximize the profitability of the properties. Yeah. So Atlanta and Indianapolis, those are two markets that you don't see paired very often, especially as like the two primary targets of a firm. Atlanta, our audience is probably a little bit more familiar with the, the macro drivers there, big city, Southeast, manufacturing, population growth, all those things. But Indianapolis, Midwest, a little bit slower rate of growth than Atlanta. What attracted you guys there? I, I like the strategy. We also are working on some Midwest markets. So I understand it, but I'd be curious for you to elaborate and what you drew you guys specifically to Indianapolis. Sure. So Indianapolis, is, we felt, was an interesting market. The first thing that our firm, based, we're based in New York and New Jersey. The first thing we always look at for an investment is, can we get in and out same day? Because we asset manage and we like to be at the properties at least once a month, if not once a week, depending on the property, we like to know that we can get in and out. We all have families at home. We're not looking to spend two, three, four days away. So we like to get in and out. So it, Indianapolis checked the box in the sense of being able to fly in it, number one. Number two, what we like about Indianapolis is it's kind of the central portion of the Midwest. It doesn't have maybe the, it's very landlord friendly, tax friendly. 
It's also, it's not a boomer bust in the sense, it's not like an Austin or a Phoenix or certain markets that went crazy during the, went crazy during the pandemic and now have been, you know, cooled off significantly. We found that it's a steady eddy where average rents were probably eight, $900 and market rents across the nation are probably $1,300, dollars We felt there was a lot of room and we went down. We liked the fact that it's easy to get to and there's good demographics and there's tons of logistics and it's within a, I think there, I saw a statistic, it's within a day or a 24 hour drive for truck drivers to get to anywhere in the country. So it really provides an affordable place for, and with a lot of jobs and a lot of growth in a steady type of growth versus maybe a market that's seen 20 plus percent rent growth and now it's seeing negative rent growth. So that's what we really like about Indiana. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I was on your website browsing through your portfolio and you've got a lot of 60s, 70s, you've got a few 80s, you've got a 90s deal, you've even got a 2021 deal. So you've bought across the spectrum. You mentioned that you focus a lot on value add, but what has led you to some of those uh, newer deals as well? So it's interesting. The newer deal in, in, in Savannah, a group had it on the contract for a few months and came to us. We met at a conference. And they said, hey, we need about five or six million dollars of equity. We'd love to partner with you. We happened to be at that, that deal. We had a 1031 need. So it made sense for us to place equity. And we've always wanted to get into newer deals. But I would say most of the A minus B plus deals don't provide the same type of returns as the heavier or the value add class C type properties. This particular property was very interesting because it was, it was built by the original developer and is being sold by the developer. And his average rents were about $1,300 and the market rent was closer to $1,700 to $1,800. So we felt that it was a great second generation lease play. We said, hey, let's test the waters because obviously we'd love to do newer and nicer assets, especially in today's market. But we haven't been able to find deals that have pencil that have worked. And this particular deal made a lot of sense. It was a smaller asset. It's only 104 units. Our, our typical deals are 150 plus units. So it was a little smaller in a new market that we've heard great things about. And most people will tell you that Savannah is, Savannah is a great market. And I'm um, thank God it was, it was a good way to, for us to test the waters on a smaller deal and new construction. Our CapEx budget was much less than what we, what we typically would do in our CapEx budget. And so far we've had a lot of success in that. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. So asset management, really crucial, often overlooked portion of what we do in multifamily business, particularly from a retail investors. I, I think sometimes retail investors can get this idea that, oh, if we just invest, then we're completely passive. And five years later, we sell and the property does well and we all make money. And, <laughs> and there's a lot that goes between closing on the property and, and selling it on the back end. And yes. That's, that's where the general partnership and, and their experience really makes the difference. What's your role in that process at Lightwater Capital? And what are a few things that you really enjoy about being involved on the asset management side? Sure. So I oversee the general oversight of the asset management across the portfolio. Once a month, we'll go through the, we'll, you know, I'll do the monthly reporting to see how the assets performing and give an update internally. In Atlanta, particularly the last few months, I've really jumped in on operations to really be on top of any collections or evictions that are needed. Um, any rental assistance programs, I've really been able to succeed in getting a lot of our, our residents much needed background that have, have, a hard, have, been, have had a hard time paying since COVID and getting them back on their feet. Um, but what I, what I really enjoy is really seeing the properties improve. I would say over the last few months, we've definitely seen an improvement in our occupancy. One of the things that I've done is that maybe, I don't know if it's so much asset management or management, but I've gone down and I've, we have 1,300 units in Atlanta. 
And we have some properties that have a few more vacancies than others. I've gone through most of the vacant units. And the reason why I did that was because I saw that it was units, instead of being turned quickly, were taking a little longer. Some of them had reasons for it. Maybe they need a little more work. A lot of them just weren't getting the proper oversight. And I decided to jump in and say, you know what, I'm going to go in and I'm going to, you know, they say trust but verify. I wanted to see where is the unit holding and how much time does it need? And many of the units I found to my surprise that were vacant for, for a little longer than they should have been, they didn't need that much. And that little extra push helped our management company realize like, hey, we need, we need to be moving these along in a quicker fashion. So that's just one, one component. Um, another thing I do is I always look at um, any other income. So we recently implemented across the board in our Atlanta portfolio. We started using Jetty as a way to help the, a win-win for the residents to help them you know, move in without a security deposit. Um, at the same time, it allows us to get more than maybe a half month or a month's rent. We're able to push even close to two months rent by having the resident paying a monthly fee. Um, we've also implemented a, a renter's insurance program. Um, we've done a lot of many different things to improve the ancillary and other income, as well as try to bring down some expenses as well. We did low flow toilets. Um, we've used a company based in Ohio that does our low flow toilets. We've done that for, at most of our properties. We had one property with some leaks. We had our property manager go building by building and check every unit and every you know fixture to make sure there's nothing leaking. And we brought down our our water bills by a good 30 to 40%. So we were very proactive in from behind the scenes and also boots on the ground. We have no problem going there, knocking on doors, making our, our suggestions to our management company and having them improve. So we definitely see an improvement with that asset management. Yeah. So Lightwater Capital started as a property management firm in New York, uh, which I think is one of the toughest places to property manage in the <laughs> world. And that's even before some of the more recent regulation that made it, I would say, almost impossible to manage properties there. Right. But it sounds like you guys are third party managing in your remote markets. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And the reason why we did that is because we really wanted to scale. When we started Lightwater Capital. The focus was we're going to, we still have our New York management company. That's kind of the full day to day focus. But we want to scale and be able to really pick up um, a few thousand units out of state. And we felt that if we're going to do our own management, um, we felt that it's just going to, maybe slow us down from doing more acquisition, but we really have a good partnership with our, with our management company, our management companies. We speak to them obviously once a week on a call, but we're also in touch with the property managers. We'll go down once a week or once a month, depending on the property. So we have a good relationship with them that even though they're the management company, we're directly involved in asset management and we were able to help dictate the, the profitability of the properties. Yeah. You're actively involved. Is it the same third-party manager in Atlanta and in Indianapolis? It's actually, we have three different management companies, actually. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 That's part of the, the scaling process is solving for property management. I mean, I know there's groups like us that have gone in-house and there's advantages to that. But on the flip side, like you just alluded to, if you keep that third party and you do have that rigorous asset management piece, it allows you to focus more of the, the time inside your capital organization on moving the ball forward as far as acquisitions and can lead to scaling much faster. Right. A few months ago, I was actually on a panel at the IMN conference in Miami. And I really would have rather have been done something with acquisitions, but the only option they had was in-house management versus third-party management. So I said, sure, I, I don't mind being on that panel. I prepared all the questions. The problem was that the moderator decided to ask completely different questions. It was a very interesting, so that was on the cuff, which was fine. Um, it was definitely very interesting to hear there were some people that manage themselves, some people that are third-party management companies. So it was interesting to hear 
each one's perspective. And then there was us that we used third-party management, but we asset managed and kind of the blend of the two. Yeah. So switching gears from asset management more towards acquisitions, Daniel, multifamily transaction volume is down significantly from 2021 to 2023, even last year to this year, significant changes. And yet you guys are still getting deals done. Where do you see opportunities in today's marketplace with the the higher interest rates and maybe a little bit of a wider spread in the bid ask gap? How are you guys getting deals done? Sure. So I'll give you one case study, for example. We closed a deal in Indianapolis about six months called called the Sycamore's Apartment. It's a 210 unit deal. The original asking price was close to 30 million. By the time the broker brought it to the table, they said it's probably going to be 27 million. We said, no, we're only at 24 million. In the end, they came back to us and said, are you still, a few months later, are you still at 24 million? We said, no, I'm sorry with today's market because that was when the rates were going up and up. We said, oh, we're only at 22 million. And at the end of the day, I guess the seller, if they're in a position that they need to sell or, or have to sell, that's obviously the best opportunity. And we were able to get that opportunity where we got the deal down to about 21 to $22 million, which is exactly where we needed it to be which is north of a six cap, which is how we're doing all our deals now, north of a six cap. And our theory is if we can make the, the deals pencil in today's market and hold on to it and re- either refi or sell within three to five years, when hopefully the mar- hopefully that markets will come down. Again, that's kind of a crystal ball. Anybody's, that's anybody's guess, but hopefully, obviously it hasn't happened yet, but hopefully if you're able to hold on for th- three, four years with fixed financing and not, you know, not just deal with a uh, recap and with floating debt, if you can make a deal pencil in today's market and get it at the six north of a six cap and you get financing around the, around the same, so you don't come in day one with negative leverage, then hey, then you should be great if the market goes down, if rates go down to four, four and a half, five percent. And especially since we're building it out to get north of a eight, like an eight cap in our year five projection. So we're, we're the way we're doing is we used to look at deals and say, okay, if it's four and a half or, or let's say it's a five cap, we have to build it out that seven cap. Now we're looking at it that it's a six cap, we're building it out north of an eight cap. And our hopes are obviously that the, the rates do come down. And we're obviously we're not underwriting it that way because that would be that would be um, probably reckless to do that. But we're but instead we're actually just saying, okay, if even if the rates don't come down, that's stress test it. If let's say the rate is at six percent, this is what it'll look like. If it's at five and a half percent, this is what an exit will look like. So we're just going, we're just looking at deals, obviously more carefully, and we're still finding opportunities because the people that need to sell are coming, are finally starting, that we found that finally starting to come meet the market. And we're only offering on deals that, that we feel, we're only offering at prices, pricing that we feel comfortable at versus maybe a year, year and a half ago when it was, you know, if you were a million or two off, don't even bother bidding, there's going to be 50 other offers. Markets have definitely changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely more of a buyer's market. I think sellers are still adjusting to the reality of what uh, current dynamics are. You mentioned debt. That's a, obviously a crucial piece of this. That's anywhere from 50 to 70% of your capital stack. What kind of debt are you placing on your properties today? Are you going fixed rate? Are you going floaters? Are you going longer term, shorter term? So primarily we're looking at all our deals with fixed, with fixed rate financing. That's how we're looking at our deals. It happens to be that one of the deals we closed recently was a heavy value add that was right next door to our best performing property in Indianapolis. So it was only about 40% occupied, but it was due to a major, a major oversight, uh, a major lack, I should say, of oversight and management where they just, you know, dropped the ball. They weren't putting any funds into the deal. And we went there thinking it needed a crazy amount of CapEx and really it needed a lot less CapEx, still needed a decent amount. So that particular deal, we had to go with rich financing, obviously, just because it wasn't stable, but primarily any of the... All other deals that we're looking at, we're looking at as fixed financing, 
I believe we're doing the Fannie five-year program, which allows to step down after three years. So we're not looking to lock, we're not looking to lock in long-term debt at seven to 10 plus years because we don't want to, we don't want to be left holding the bag. I remember looking at deals um, at my previous company in, in 2020, I was with a different group called Aria Legacy Group. And I remember looking at deals that the, the rates then were probably two and a half to 3%. Oh, but you have to assume the loan for 2018 at a four and a half percent. And I remember thinking, no way, 2018, those guys get left holding the bag. Now it looks great. If a guy had a loan four and a half percent, people would take it all day, all day. So we don't want to end up that we lock in a loan that's at six, six and a half percent for 10 years. And then when the rates come down, we're kind of stuck holding back. So we're, we're looking, we do, but we also obviously want to be conservative and make sure that we don't rush it, say, oh, that it's going to be a short-term um, refi. So we are taking, for most of our deals, fix that at five years with the option of refinancing after three years. Yeah. Yeah. I think trying to thread that needle is important. I saw a lot of those deals in 2019, 2020 as well, where it was loan assumptions in the fours and. At the time, that was just horrendous. Nails on chocolate. <laughs> yeah. As you said today, we'd all do those deals. But threading that needle is important. Longer term debt, you get more certainty, but you tend to pay more in prepayment penalties. And so right. you're, or in yield maintenance or defeasance, depending on what loan product you're going with. So we're buying, we, our last couple of deals were all newer assets that we were planning to hold at least five years. So we we're putting seven or 10 year debt on it. Um, but really doing so with the acknowledgement that, hey, this may end up not looking so good halfway in, it's particularly on 10-year debt. I think we're going to try to stay away from 10-year debt unless it's a true long-term hold for us. For that reason, you just, there's so much variability in the interest rate market and you can uh, get locked into bad debt if the markets were to change. Right. Right. Well, as we're uh, getting ready to wind up here, Daniel, what's a habit that's contributed to your success that, that drives you, that fuels you? Sure. I would say I'm very persistent. Um, I try to be persistent without being pesky. I have an interesting story in my previous company. We were focused more on off-market multifamily investments. Um, they were focused on Missouri and Louisiana. And there was a deal in Missouri that was right across the street from a deal that we were looking into. And I had reached out to the property owner who owned the deal. It was actually the site. It was in Ferguson, Missouri, the site of the Michael Brown shooting. And I reached out to him. I said, Randy, we... We know the area. We just toured another area, another property. We're very interested in your property. It's 414 units. He said, I don't think you're going to get to my price point. I said, what's your price point? He said, $9 million. This is in 2021. $9 million is 21,000 unit, which is unheard of. Even in today's market where things are, are not doing well, you're not going to hear 20,000 a unit. It just doesn't happen. So when I heard that, I said, where do we sign? We're very interested. He, he didn't want to give us information because the property it was a heavy lift. It was about 65, 70% occupied in a little bit of a tougher area. I had to set up a meeting with my then boss, whose name was Joe as well. I had to set up a meeting for him to go down, meet with Randy in his corporate office to agree to give us a, a, a rent roll. He gave us a 46 page printout of a rent roll. I had one of the girls in the office put into make it into an Excel spreadsheet. And then I had to follow up with him to get more, in, in, in more info. But first I set, up a, uh, I set up a site visit. We said, we're very interested. Long story short, it took, it took about six months to get the deal done, but being that I was persistent and I was in, you know, in touch with them and, and constant communication helped us get the deal done. So that's definitely something, a habit that I have of being persistent and following up. And that's definitely helped me in my, in my acquisitions role tremendously. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Appreciate you sharing that story. 
If folks want to learn more about what you're doing at Lightwater Capital, how can they reach out to you, Daniel? Um, best way to get in touch with me is on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. You can message me. You can reach out. I'm happy to, happy to set up a time to chat. I could also send them my calendar links if they want to set up a time for a call. And I'm always into paid forward. I feel like, I, feel like I learned a ton from LinkedIn and from other platforms, from people in the space that have a few more years of experience. And I'm always happy to help help somebody else as well. Like, feel free to reach out to me. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thank you to our audience for joining us. This has been another episode of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.